I'm Jason Thomas. Welcome to the Hardway MBA, where we empower ambitious corporate professionals. That's you, right? With real-world business knowledge. We interview business leaders who are gracious enough to share their strategic insights and tactical activities to improve your business and career. If you enjoy these interviews, please spread the word because nothing says thank you as well as a referral to your friends and colleagues. Now let's dive in. Welcome, welcome, everybody. This is Jason Thomas with another episode of the Hardway MBA. A very, ex- a very exciting guest to introduce to you guys today. Uh, Kirk Bowman uh, started a, an Art of Value podcast. Everybody hit pause real quick. Go uh, to your favorite podcast uh, channel and, and find the Art of Value. Listen to one of Kirk's episodes, then come back. Um, but make sure you come back. Um, Kirk and I have known each other for quite a while. I'm really excited to see what he's doing with the Art of Value and excited to to treat you guys in the audience to this concept of value in a way that not a lot of people in the business world are, are talking about it. Um, Kirk, I know you're a very busy guy. I appreciate your time today. And tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I can introduce you more, but tell us about yourself and what you're up to and what the you know what kind of business endeavors you're taking on right now is a, a good place to get us started here. Jason, thanks for having me on the show. So I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've only worked for somebody else one year since I've been out of college. I started out as a musician. Then I went into kind of Mac tech support. I've been in now software development for over 20 years. And a couple of years ago, I started the Art of Value. The Art of Value simply is designed to help freelancers, small businesses, etc., convert their business model generally from hourly pricing over to value pricing. I made that switch in my business over five years ago, and because of the success and the passion I have for that, I want to help others do the same. Yeah, and this this concept of value is something that uh, I I think about a lot. And having talked to you about it in the past, and and uh, you know read some of the same books that you originally started reading at, at your at your uh, 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 recommendation, I I kind of understand what you're talking about, but. Level set that for us a little bit. When you say value, I kind of—I'm not thinking value city furniture. I'm thinking you mean something completely different than that. Yes, we don't mean value equals low price. Yeah. What we mean, value is the result the customer will receive or achieve from doing business with you. For example, a customer does not come to my software company, Mighty Data, because they want to buy custom software. They come to Mighty Data because they want whatever the result is that custom software will help them achieve. Mm-hmm. You have to focus on the end result. If you do that, almost everything else will fall into place. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it is worth it. So when you thought, when you think in terms of uh, value as opposed to uh, time and material or time uh, and expenses or a time-based billing mechanism. You know, you talk about a business model shift in, in a way. How does that – unpack that a little bit for us because I know there's a lot more there. Yes. That may be the most important question we answer on this show. Value pricing is a business model. 
A business model is based on a philosophy or a theory of how the world works. What most people don't realize is when they bill by the hour, they have subscribed to a business model or a philosophy that's essentially Marxism. (laughs) Karl Marx didn't come up with this idea, but he's the one that really promoted it through his work. And yes, I'm talking about Karl Marx that was kind of the seed for communism. Uh He purported the labor theory of value, which says the value of something is the sum of everything that went into it. The labor, the raw materials, just whatever it took to make it, that's what it's worth. The opposite of that is called the subjective theory of value, which says what something is worth is ultimately determined by the customer's perception. Hourly billing and value pricing could not be more opposite. And so I think value pricing is the right way of doing business, and hourly billing is the wrong way of doing business. Here's another reason. Hourly billing creates a conflict of interest between the customer and the professional. Here's why. It's in the customer's best interest for it to take as little amount of time as possible so they have the lowest price. And by the way, everybody wants to pay the lowest price. That's human nature. We want to make our resources go further. Yep. For the professional, you want it to take as many hours as possible because that's going to maximize your revenue. Mm -hmm. Those two things are opposed, and I have not found anyone who can explain that away. I've had some people who I know are very ethical tell me, well, look, I don't try to gouge the customer. I don't try to work as many hours as I can. Okay, but there's still other issues with it. Yeah. Value pricing aligns the interests. It says, hey, we're going to look at this from the customer's perspective. What is the value to them? What is the result they're going to achieve? And then that's going to drive the scope, the price, everything else. Scope, the price, everything else. So in part, I'm hearing, uh, you know, we you're working on a, a fixed fee, quote unquote. So. You know, what's the difference between a, a fixed fee and time and materials? If I'm if I'm just looking at, hey, what's it going to take me to build this? I build up my estimate. I put my contingency fee in there for taking the risk on of a fixed fee. Now, you know, I've got a, a, a nice round fixed number that I'm going to charge my client, and they're going to get value in that. Is that you, – you realize I'm joking with you a little bit, but <laughs> uh, that's not what you're talking about, that – but I, I'm I'm betting someone in our audience is going, oh, yeah, we do fixed fields all the time. Well, here's a different way to ask the question. Are a fixed price and a value price the same thing? Yep. Answer is no. Because a fixed price, most people still wind up looking at their costs one way or the other. To come up with their fixed price. Mm-hmm. A value price says, you know what, I'm not going to look at costs at all, at least not initially. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to the customer, figure out what's valuable for them, and that's how I'm going to come up with a price. Then, and only then, will I look at my costs and go, can I deliver that value at that price and make a profit? Right. 
So you're not completely uh, avoiding the conversation with yourself or with another part of your organization about w- will this be a profitable project for us? You're not you're not in business only to provide only to create value for customers. There's still value for you at the end of the day as well. Right. I mean, value pricing it has to be a win-win. It has mm-hmm. to serve both the needs of the customer and the needs of the provider. Now, the needs of the customer come first because it's a life principle. If you serve others, you in turn will be served. Right. You know, it's more blessed to give than receive. Yeah. It doesn't say it's more blessed to give and never receive. <laughs> That's right. One of the best ways to learn how to give is to learn how to receive. Um, if you, if you, this comes from a, uh, Oh, I, another conversation that, that we'll get into later. Um, but, so getting back to the, the, the concept of value, this conversation with clients uh, is different than most I'm imagining. It's different than most that I engage in. Um, so how do you introduce this concept to clients that haven't worked with you this way before, who come to, your, uh, come to you and are asking for something? They think they know how, how they should buy it. And they kind of have this education of how the world sells things, uh, maybe even software development in some cases. How do you how do you approach this with a client? So I do not say, Mr. Client, by the way, we value price. Here's what that is. That's just going to feel weird and it's not going to make for a good conversation. Uh-huh. So really all I do is I just have a good conversation, but I guide the conversation. How do you guide a conversation? You ask great questions. The person, and I hate to use the word control because that implies a winner and a loser, but the person who guides a conversation is the one that asks the questions. Mm -hmm. And if you ask great questions, it's going to be a great conversation. Not every customer is open to having a great conversation. And I have some customers, even customers who paid me money first, who ask, why are you asking these questions? And then I have to be prepared to answer that. And I say, what is most important is the outcome you're seeking. I want to make sure that whatever I do helps you achieve that outcome. And by the way, I also want to make sure that outcome is significant. I'm not interested in doing work that moves the needle a percent or two or five. I'm interested in doing work that moves the needle at least 10%, if not more. Various ways to say that, but that's how I answer the question. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, what's what are common reactions? I mean, do people walk away from that saying that, you know, I I can't, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm not going to, I'm not going to work that way. Do you feel like you lose any business because of this? Oh, certainly. But we qualify customers and decide whether a good fit all the time, at least Uh good salespeople do. Yeah. I mean, it's a principle of sales. That not every customer is a good customer. Not every customer is a good friend, good fit. My friend Ron Baker says bad customers drive out good customers. What he's saying is if you load yourself up with a lot of bad customers, you are not going to be able to serve the good customers well, and you're going to wind up driving out the good customers and are going to be left with their bad customers. You've got to say no to bad customers early. Mm-hmm. So. If somebody's not willing to have this conversation, I'm totally comfortable if they want to walk away, and I'll give you a couple of examples, maybe three examples. 
first, probably the worst example I've ever had, worst reaction to this. I was talking to the guy, he called me up, and after about 15 minutes, he goes, I just don't get why you're asking these questions. And I explained it to him, and he said, well, that's really irrelevant. I want to talk about this. And I said, well, I can't talk about that. And then he got mad, and before he hung up the phone, he said, thanks for wasting my time. Not a customer I'd want to work with. That's an extreme, but that has happened. Right. Well, Another customer that's go ahead. Any salesperson in any uh, you know any sector or industry is going to have some horror stories. So hearing horror stories that come from a different approach uh, to any salesperson sitting out there should not make you think, "Hey, I'm not going to try that." He's had a he's had a couple of rough conversations. If you haven't had any rough conversations, you are not selling. So exactly. I, it's good to hear another uh, an, another example of a different kind of rough conversation. Please continue with the next example. So the next one is actually one we're in the middle of right now. Um, had a good conversation with what I would call a midline manager and his subordinate yesterday. I asked them questions about the value. It's obvious they can't answer them. Yep. They don't even realize they can't answer them. It's obvious they're only looking at the project tactically. Mm-hmm. My guess is this organization is probably 60 to 80 people, maybe 100 tops. Anyway, the president's on vacation, and they were tasked with, hey, go get us prices, and when the president gets back, make a recommendation. Yep. And I said, I can't provide a price until I talk to the president. I need to know his perspective because one of the things I've identified is one of the reasons they're entertaining the project is because it affects his direct assistant. That's huge value, but I need to understand that. Because quite frankly, the stuff they're giving me right now, it's going to say a couple hours a week, this or that. It's not worth spending money on. It's not a project that's going to move the needle. We sent them an email yesterday saying, look, we'd love to do business with you, but we need to respectfully ask you to follow our process. We will be happy to provide a price, but we need to talk to the president. Mm-hmm. Don't know how that's going to turn out yet. I, I think I know how it's going to go, but you know, I might luck out. Yeah, so – a couple of things come to mind there. One, you said you know, drive out bad customers early. I, I think about early stage in a business or early in, um, you know, building building a a desk or you know one, a sales guy within a larger enterprise thinking about his his role as building a business. Um, the courage to do that early when you don't have a lot of other business in front of you. Did you as you were making this transition? Did you face that? I mean, that seems like there's a there's a tipping point there where you got to say I'm all in and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mess around with this other way of doing things that I don't believe in anymore, even if it means I I'm hungry for a while. This is actually a fairly common question, and it typically comes from people who are early in their business or in a season of their business where. They're either very close or they've run out of their runway. Mm -hmm. Let me just say it out loud again, and I've said it on other shows. There's nothing wrong with feeding your family. And if you need to do an hourly project because you need to feed your family, go do it. That's a biblical mandate, and that is first priority number one. But I would add, if that's where you are in your business, either you need to focus more on who your customer is and your marketing and so forth, or maybe you're not cut out for business because anybody who stays in business a long time should not consistently be in that, you know, check to check kind of mode. 
Right. And as long as you stay in that mode, value pricing is going to be a challenge because, yes, you are going to be put in positions where you're going to be challenged on, am I going to essentially cave in? Am I going to make an exception or am I going to hold my ground? And Mm -hmm. by the way, you will hit this place not just the first year, the second year, but year after year after year. Just yesterday, you know, Susan, our project manager, this specific Mm -hmm. project I was talking about just a minute ago. We had that conversation, and it was literally, do we need to cave in and get the business, or are we going to hold our ground? And we decided to hold our ground. And the reason, by the way, the reason we made the decision was we realized if they're pushing back right now on this, they're going to push back on other things. And so we're going to set the tone for the relationship right now. Right, right. I know in the past you and I have had conversations uh, in part around value and in part around this this client selection process that we call sales where most people think that the clients are selecting us or deselecting us as uh, vendors, quote-unquote, where I, the, the thing that I've always admired about your approach to it is that you take that as a, mutual, uh, a, a mutually beneficial conversation, that we're selecting one another or we're not. And the, the, just that twist, just the idea that I as a salesperson can walk away from any deal for any legitimate reason – brings a lot of power, empowerment, I would say, and value to what we all do as salespeople. Um, And it sounds like that's a big part of the value proposition that you have here and the the value uh, model that you've created. Do you agree with that or am am I seeing something that's not quite there? No, I would agree. The idea that you qualify, that you vet your customers, that you make a choice about who you're going to do business with, not just take anybody who, quote, walks in the door, mm-hmm. that's a fundamental of good sales, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Especially if you're in professional services. Now, that might shift a little if you're in products, but more and more nowadays, somebody who there are very few people in sales who sell, let's just say, low-dollar products, right? right. If, if you're selling products, they're high-dollar. Well, guess what comes with high-dollar products? Service. Yes. <laughs> so you're either in a service business or in a product business with services if you're in sales. Yeah. Okay? Walmart doesn't have a salesperson sitting there by the aisle to sell soap. Right. Okay? We're selling high-value stuff. So, yes, you're going to have to qualify your customers. And I go back to what I said earlier. Bad customers drive out good customers. You're either going to make a decision to build your business with good customers or you're going to make a decision to build it with bad ones. There is no in-between. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying if you realize, oh, shoot, I've got 80% bad customers. I'm not saying go out tomorrow and fire all of them. I am saying realize that's the position you're in and come up with a strategy that somewhere inside of 6 to 12 months will substantially change that. Right, right. And by the way, bad customers still get in the door occasionally. I think of one right now where, you know, it, 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 we, we were 90% done with the project. We get down to the last 10%, and you know how things could just run off the rails in technology uh-huh. due to nothing that we can affect. And, you know, customers having a hard time understanding that this is not something that is we can affect, right? It's something they brought with them to the situation. But bottom line is, um, based on this, they're kind of turning out to be a bad customer. And again, we had the conversation and we want to serve them well so that if they leave us, they'll at least say we did a good job, mm-hmm. you know, but if they need, if they self-select leave, I'm okay with it. Yeah. yeah. I don't so, not be in business if I can't serve good customers. 
So I, the, the way you talk about this strikes me as an entrepreneur, a small business owner, um, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you a little bit, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate, and I'm kind of speaking to my own experience about where I am today. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a bit up in the air, but I know that there's other folks that, that think this wholeheartedly. So I work at a, a larger organization, and we're pretty aggressive about the business we chase, and we report to Wall Street, and you know we've got numbers we have to hit. And you know as long as we're ethical in the way we hit those numbers, then we're going to try to we're going to try to do it. Um, so the idea of bad customers uh, at, at a larger organization tends to fade, or it tends to weaken a little bit. Is my experience. Uh, how do you see the the concept of this value billing model or the value pricing model, uh, this business model based on value? I think is a better way for me to think about it than try to pigeonhole it as billing or pricing. How do you see that playing out at a larger organization that has a business model that is kind of a little more traditional and a little more not based on the the billing of value. Does that make sense? Yeah. Essentially, if I can paraphrase the question, yeah. I think it's a question about either the scalability of the model or the application of the model within a large organization. Particularly the application of a model within a larger organization, certainly, and within a larger organization that that may not disagree with it, but certainly is not espousing it. So the first thought that occurred to me is a larger organization is generally going to have more systems and processes in place to, number one, help educate customers, number two, help qualify customers. Mm-hmm. So at least one that's run well, okay? I don't think you can get away from this idea that bad customers drive out good customers in any size business. There have been plenty of studies that have shown that the majority of your revenue comes from a small percentage of the customers, and the business would be healthier if it got rid of the large percentage that are just a suck on the business. Mm-hmm. Now, in a large organization, you know, you're 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 a frontline salesperson. There's five, six levels of hierarchy. Do you have the ability to affect that? Maybe, maybe not. But I still think you can sell on value. I mean, I think about Bob Berg in the book The Go Giver. Yep. talks about five laws. Uh-huh. The first law is the law of value. Uh-huh. So I don't think this goes away. You know, maybe it's not the whole, you know, maybe maybe you're not in a position to set the prices, but the idea of selling on value, I think it applies. I don't I don't think it's a uh, oh, we're a big organization, we're a small organization. Yeah. Yeah, and I I I assumed that was going to be your answer. I certainly see that um I see that playing out in front of me. Um so uh, talk to me a little bit. I want to switch gears a little bit. And you brought up the – I was speaking of the law of receptivity. I think it's the fifth law uh, in that book uh, when, I, when I said something about the, the being able to receive helps you be able to give. Um, and that's one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, the, the way this plays out for a customer across their life cycle. We've talked about sales, and I could talk about sales all day because that's what I do. It's what I. It's what I. It's where my passion lies. Uh, how does this mindset impact your marketing? You know, like pre pre sales, and then service and retention, and all the way through a customer life cycle. That's an awesome question. 
what is coming to my mind is the interview I actually did just yesterday. It's going to be released in a couple of weeks. I interviewed Joni Newkirk, who was one of the principal architects of what's been called the brilliant price hike that happened at Disney in the mid-2000s. And I think that show will answer a lot of these questions. And I'm not trying to evade the answer by saying, well, I'm not going to answer here. Go listen to my show. But that's a question that you really have to go deep on. But one of the things she talked about during the episode was how basically they were pricing in silos all across the organization. And we're talking about Disney, huge, mm-hmm. huge organization. And one of the things that was central to them being able to pull this off and by the way, when I say pull this off, it's a pricing strategy that increased their revenue by 20% the first year they implemented. So that was a win. And that's 20% for Disney is a phenomenal number. Yeah. And so what they did is they consolidated all the pricing, all the responsibility for pricing and revenue management into one department. One department set pricing and revenue goals for the entire organization. With that they were able to actually implement value across the organization and make sure that a value focus is what drove their decisions. Now, also in that episode, we talked a lot about how the concept of value is really an alignment of the value the customer wants with the goals of the organization. Again, the idea it's got to be a win-win. Business is not a zero-sum game. It's not a poker game, okay? That's the scarcity mindset. It's an abundance yep. mindset. Yep. But really that episode, and it was just, if you want to dive deep into this, that is a show that I would listen to. Well, I will, uh, and that'll be on your, that'll be coming out on the Art of Value podcast. Yes. So I'll uh, put a link to that in the show notes for sure. And uh, try to go back and update the show notes when I hear it come out. Yeah, we're probably a couple weeks out from that. So I don't okay. sure, I don't know how quickly you release it, your content, but uh it's about a couple weeks out. Cool, cool. Well, I know every year I uh, every year I, I identify three words that are going to help me, help me focus on what am I going to improve on, what am I going to change this year, and and this year uh, word number one is abundance, uh, and so that abundance mindset the and and that really carries through a lot of the things that you talk about from a, a value perspective that it's if you look at the world as a zero sum game it becomes that for you. And you, you've you've said that kind of thing. Bad customers beget bad customers. You drive out the good customers. If you're if you you get to create the world you want to live in, uh, so figure out what that is, right, <laughs> and make that happen. Uh, to, so, Kirk, thanks so much for spending some time with us today and kind of walking through these uh, these pieces with us. I think, you know the. The value you've given us here will far exceed the 20, 30 minutes people uh, spend listening to it. So, you know, for me to you, thank you. Uh, the audience of this podcast is generally uh, hustlers. They're, they're, they're grinders. They're guys and, and gals and people that are focused on developing themselves and their professionalism and their uh, their craft, whatever that craft might be. Um it, if they were going to adopt a, a piece, and, and a lot of them end up being sales folks because sales folks tend towards those kind of roles. Um, if you were going to uh, adopt, excuse me, if you were going to share something that they could adopt tomorrow that might change their business, might change their life, 
what kind of tangible activity or action item would you would you give as a homework assignment? It's a great question. I think I would say this. Being a salesperson is a courageous endeavor. It takes courage to put yourself in a position where people are going to say no or yes constantly. If you're in a sales position, just because you take a value approach, that's not going to go away. But what it will do is it will help you get the sales that you really want. And it will help you be confident in what you're selling. As long as you're selling and you're, it's a numbers game, that's not a fun game to be in. And it's a game that's just a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. I use a way to step out and say, I'm not playing that game. Be courageous. I said in a presentation that I did in Dallas about a year ago, I said um, hourly billing requires a calculator. Value pricing requires courage. I like that. I like that. And knowing that uh, a lot of us may be stuck with uh, the calculator that we have to use for uh, a corporate gig that says, hey, this is how we price things. That does not mean that we can't have that value conversation so if we if we're working with a client and I've I've done this with clients before, um, where we've we've had the conversation and it's come to their realization that if it, whatever they invest in this, they're expecting an ROI or or a return of about a million dollars in a year. So we figured out the R. Now let's go talk about the I. The I can be you know the investment there could be a separate piece where you know what? If I'm going to charge you $2 million and you're going to get that all of that paid back in two years, okay, you know that. Is that is that the value, the kind of return you're looking for? Or does it need to be better? There's a conversation. If if I'm going to charge you $100,000 and you're going to get that million dollars in a year, uh, you know, I'll, I'll walk into that conversation every day. Very happy to have it. <laughs> I completely agree. I mean – I think a return of five to one to ten to one is a conversation almost anybody would be willing to have. Yeah. Right? If you ask people, hey, would you spend three dollars to make one, you might get a mixed reaction. But if you say spend one to make five, yeah, or one to make ten, that's a conversation most people will be willing to have. Yep. Assuming they have a dollar, it it's an it's a no brainer. Well, and I, I would add this, assuming they are reasonable. Well, yes, this is true. This is true. Reasonable people. Got to start there. Yeah, unfortunately, common sense is not so common. (laughs) Very true. So, Kirk, how – if people have questions for you, want to talk to you about your – what you do at Mighty Data and how you build uh, phenomenal software or more about value and the the art of value, how do they get a hold of you? What's the best way to find Kirk? So our website is artofvalue.com. You can find us on Twitter at Art of Value. I'm going to recommend a couple of resources to your audience based upon our conversation if they'd like to go deeper. Early in the episode, we talked a lot about kind of hourly billing. Mm -hmm. If that conversation has intrigued you, then I encourage you to go check out episode six of The Art of Value. The title of that episode is The History of the Billable Hour, and you can find it by going to artofvalue.com slash six, as in the number six. Okay. And we mentioned Bob Berg, who happens to have been a guest on my show. So I'd love for people to go check out that episode. 
Again, it's artofvalue.com. This time it's episode 30. And the title of that episode, The Law of Value. Perfect. And I'll put those in the show notes for folks so they can uh, you know, go to hardwaymba.com. It'll be right there for you. And uh, thanks again, Kirk. Really appreciate your time. Jason, you're very and well. your value. Well, and let me add, you, you nailed it right there. I don't thank people for their time anymore. I thank them for their knowledge and expertise. Yep. Perfect.